Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we listen to the other side. Each podcast, we listen to the story of a former atheist who changed their mind and came to believe in God. There are lots of reasons why we believe what we do. We don't hold our beliefs in a vacuum. We're not purely rational beings. Our beliefs are wrapped up in a story, a story of how we got here and why we believe the way we do. Sometimes we believe things because we think it's the rational, intellectual thing to do. Sometimes we believe things because it's what our friends and family and culture believes. And other times we've decided on what we believe because of what we've experienced or perhaps what we feel. Still other times we believe things just because we want them to be true. Most of the time, it's a combination of a lot of different things. A lot of different motivations, memories, experiences, and desires. And you have to look in a lot of different directions to tease them all out. And oftentimes you hear them when you hear someone's story, when you hear them tell their story. Today we'll be talking with Peter Byram. He's a former atheist who came to Christian faith a few years ago. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. It's great to have you on the show. As we're getting started, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Certainly, yes, and thank you. It's really great to be on the show with you. So, um, uh, where tell tell you about myself? Where to begin with that? Well. Um, I think um, given what we're going to be talking about today, um, it might be worth starting from sort of university years, really. I um, I graduated from the University of Kent, um, that's in Canterbury in, um, uh, in England, United Kingdom, um, doing drama and theatre, of all things. Um, so that was things like sound design, performing classical texts, Shakespearean stuff, um, and multimedia theatre. Um, and um, and then after that, after a fairly windy journey that I'm sure we'll we'll get to talking about, um, then went on to do things like um, video editing, graphic design editing, including for a number of um, Christian ministries. Um, and now um, I work for um, SPCK and IVP, who are um, Christian publishers, um, doing digital production and workflow and those sort of things. Um, and um, live with my wife and our uh, children in the uh, sort of rural southeast of um, England. So that's um, that's a quick summary of um, uh, where I've come from over the last decade or so, let's say. So, Peter, in setting the context for your story, I always like to understand about the place where you grew up and the people who surrounded you. Were there any religious references in your world? Well, I was I was raised in a Christian home, and I have and did have Christian parents, um, and so yes, you could say that I was um, I started uh, with those influences, and even around teenage years, um, I thought that I had a religious conversion experience and would have called myself a Christian then even went to the point of getting um, confirmed in the Church of England, I think round about the time I was um, I think probably about 17 years old. Um, so I, I started with uh, Christian influences, but they didn't really last beyond leaving home. That was, that was the key um, turning point there. Um, 
it's it's one thing to grow up with them, but when you leave the home and start doing your own thing, that's when the real test begins of whether you really own those beliefs or not. Mm. So what happened when you left home? What what was it that made you start to doubt your own Christian upbringing, your Christian faith and belief? I think at the time there was just, um, I think it was quite gradual. I think there was a sense of gradually thinking it didn't make sense or that it didn't fit my particular experiences um, or that it wasn't particularly relevant. It just seemed to gradually be falling away into the background. Um, And I think also the people I was associating with and the kind of experiences I wanted to have at the time had an effect. I mean, let's be honest, if if you've been brought up under your parents' authority and then leave that authority... um, the idea of having a continuing authority over your life isn't particularly attractive a lot of the time. And I think that's how I saw it, which was, this is my chance to do my own thing. Um, I think more specifically, um, during my gap year and at university, the friends and the people that I mixed with, um, I think I very much became part of a culture that liked to think of itself as being quite expressive and sophisticated. Because remember, this is the... Um, arts and the drama acting crowd, mm. you know, and 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 students in general, anyway, right? Um, right. And it's easy to get into conversations, and it's easy to join in with people that might, um, you know, dismiss religious belief, or you know, I, I can just have memories of being in the being in the pub, having drinks with student friends of mine, and people casually, you know, attacking the Pope and saying, you know, oh, he's an idiot, and he's. Um, uh, you know, he's uh, he's against condom distribution in Africa and they're all going to die of AIDS because of what he's done, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, I mean, there are all sorts of, I think there were a lot of cultural influences as well, you know, even just things like hanging out with people, listening to the late comedian Bill Hicks, you know, who was um, um, hilarious but scathing as well and very, very critical of religion and institutions. And so one way or another, I think just the general culture that I was mixing with Um, I came to see religious belief as something that was for close-minded people, simplistic people who were afraid of grey areas, of ambiguity, of exploring what it is to be human. And I saw the more secular, artistic um, world as being a better fit for that kind of stuff. So it just, I think it just gradually fell away into irrelevance um, in my own experience and my own thinking. Mm. So dismissing God seemed to be the attractive thing to do, the thing that just fit well with your world at university. Did, yeah. Yeah, um, it did. Um, I think it did. Um, And I think what then really started pushing it um, was then I was explicitly recommended at the time, Richard Dawkins' latest book, you know, the new book. You've got to cast your mind back to, I think we're talking 2006 here. Um, mm. That's when The God Delusion came out. Um, and, and you know, at least one friend of mine who he started as a Christian and then he lost his faith. And he was recommending this book to me saying, you've got to read this. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And this was actually, 
you know, the the great new atheist Dawkins taking on religious belief and not just being content with saying, oh, well, you believe what you want and I'll believe what I want. He actually went so far as to say, no, this is wrong. It's irrational. Um, it's harmful. And you should not believe it. And mm. that just really um, got me curious as well. And so then I just started reading and looking into the new atheists, um, Dawkins, Hitchens, uh, and those people. So it was I think it was partly the culture I was mixing with, but then eventually it became explicitly being recommended the New Atheist books. So then it, w- it really became a combination of a lot of things. It just Christianity wasn't attractive. It wasn't relevant. You're telling me it's, it wasn't plausible, that it was really for the simple-minded person. Was it hard at all for you to, I know this it seems like a strange question, but was it hard after being brought up as a Christian, believing in God, was it hard to let that go? I, I know sometimes you you can just tick, you know, untick the God box and 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 just live your life. But was there any kind of tension with that? It's funny, really. I think in terms of living the way that I was living and what I would say and do, it was easy to let go of it because I was doing a lot of things that you certainly wouldn't associate with someone who held to Christian values and beliefs. Um, It was very easy for me to just be behaving in all sorts of different ways. Um, I think the interesting thing about being confronted with books, atheist books like Dawkins and Hitchens was that that's when you have to be more conscious and more aware explicitly of the fact that you are challenging and denying these beliefs. Um, and I think some some bits of beliefs were harder to let go of than others. I mean, I wanted to, you know, really, really challenge the beliefs that I'd been brought up with. Um, and so I think a lot of um, a lot of the arguments that the new atheists were giving, you know, a lot of the evolutionary arguments for why Darwinism was meant to disprove God and um, and and even just listing the atrocities of religious people and just the various arguments that they were making. Um, I, I think they they quite naturally started to replace um, whatever Christian beliefs that I'd started with. So I think it was, the best way I can describe it is that it was a very conscious process. I had to be very deliberate um, in denying the belief that I'd been brought up with. I had to remind myself consciously, remember, you are denying this you are denying that there is a god or you are um you are throwing this away and i wanted to i definitely wanted to i lost the attraction to it um but i was aware that it took a a certain degree of effort in doing so if that made sense mm. yes it it would seem especially if you're looking at things conscientiously that there would be a sense of a subtle tension, at least in letting go of a long-held belief. But I guess because you said, like you said, you're surrounded by people who are very like-minded and it gave you permission to do what you wanted to do. So at this time where you were letting go of God and Christianity, what did you think Christianity was then if it wasn't real or true? I think... How would I have put it? I think at the time, I probably would have characterized it quite harshly, and I probably would have put it as something for people who were afraid of the complexities of life, um, who were afraid of dying, 
um, who didn't understand the evolutionary paradigm, who didn't have philosophical sophistication. Um, I think I probably just lumped it in with a general nature or um, an assumption about what it is to be a religious person. Mm. Um, And it was very much about the people or the type of person that you needed to be. Um, So I think it was very much just to do with, look, this is one of a number of different beliefs that people come up with. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't hold water. You know, um, there are religious people who do all sorts of stupid things who contradict each other. If God existed, then they would be behaving a lot more coherently, sophisticatedly. Um, yeah, I, I think that there was a kind of snobbishness. I think it was um, this is something for people who can't handle um, the the gray areas of life. Mm. So the Christians were just the type of person you did not want to be. So it makes me very curious about what it is that changed your mind to open the door to even consider being that kind of person again. What what started you on that road? Yeah, well, that's a strange thing because, you know, a moment ago I said that um, – Uh, it was the likes of the new atheism and Dawkins and those people that really got me denying Christianity more and sort of fighting against it more and sort of reaffirming um, my thinking um, about wanting to get out of it. You could also say that it was it was actually Dawkins and those new atheists, ironically, that actually started me on the route to becoming a Christian as well, which I know that they, I'm sure they wouldn't like that. But I think that is partly what happened um, because it was all about the debate being stirred up, about the questions being asked. Um, I mean, for example, um, one of the big light bulb moments that I had when I was reading The God Delusion, for example, was in that book, Dawkins defines faith as being belief without evidence or belief um, in spite of evidence. And he was saying, look, you should only believe things that have evidence for them. And at the very first time I read that, I completely bought that definition that he gave. Now, now of course, I think that's a totally false definition. Um, it's it's a caricature. But at the time, um, I bought that and I, and I sort of latched onto that principle and thought, Yes, that makes sense, of course. I mean, why would I ever believe or accept anything where for which for which I cannot say myself, I have investigated this, I can point to a body of evidence. Um, and it was it was one of those moments of making myself conscious, um, conscious of a process that seems to be obvious. You know, it seems obvious that I ought to investigate things and find evidence for them. So that became what seemed to be um, um, the first ticket, if you like, to um, sort of getting rid of Christianity. Because I thought at the time, well, if I just investigate this stuff, there will be no evidence. There will be nothing. Um, it'll all fall apart. So in a way, I started by taking Dawkins' recommendation, look for evidence. Um, and that led me onto the path of actually... I. I would watch debates on YouTube. I read various books and I would talk to different people. Initially, there were Christians and religious people who were doing a really terrible job 
of debating against people like Dawkins and Hitchens, Sam Harris, the new atheists, um, really embarrassing. And just, you would just, I would be cheering for the new atheists, you know, um, defending science and reason against these religious bigots and idiots and that kind of stuff. Um, and then gradually though, um, that led me on to discover Christian apologetics. So that's people like John Lennox, William Lane Craig, um, those sort of people um, who had a much more robust um, set of arguments and a way of interacting on this issue. Um, so it was really about discovering the debate. The The other side of this, I should say um, briefly as well, is that um, in terms of the people I was surrounded with, I mentioned already there was one friend who began as a Christian and then became an atheist and recommended that I read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. At round about the same time, another of my best friends at university, who had not come from a religious background of any kind, um, I think he basically was an atheist to begin with, he then had a big conversion experience and became a Christian. And I and I was living with these two people. They, that was massively inconvenient. It would have, <laughs> it would have been it would have been so much more convenient um, to just um not have to be confronted with the reality of uh, people becoming christians and god working in their lives and and to have that other side of the debate fleshed out you know sort of in in front of my face um it just it confronted it made me need to confront the issue and i couldn't just i wasn't just confronting it as a hobby or academically reading books and watching debates i was living with two people that were living this stuff out you know so again it's 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 what you read and what you listen to but it's also who you're with right did you have some lively debates with them did you all participate together in discussing these these big oh, issues you bet we did oh yeah you bet we absolutely <laughs> did yeah yeah, I mean, you know, this this is university where, you know, there's where there's scarcely any boundaries on alcohol consumption or when the sensible time is to go to bed or, what, <laughs> or whatever. Um, you know, um, th- th- there would be all sorts of things, um, you know, and I would take different sides a lot of the time. Um, you know, I mean, I would begin being really, really hostile towards the Christian stuff, you know, saying, like, you know, how can you believe this? You know, are you not, I mean, are you are you against are you anti-gay you know all that kind of stuff um uh, but then you know things would emerge that were challenges for the atheist point of view as well questions about um you know the uh the grounding of moral truths for example and and you know can you can you strip away all of the history of the influences of christianity on moral thought in the in western culture and come up with your own foundation and um, all sorts of all sorts of debates would go back and forth. Um, you know, scientific debates, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, we we would we would lay into some really um, good um, debates and challenges among each other. So, during these times of debates, would you say that you were open to another perspective, or were you just adamant about atheism and weren't really listening to the other challenges? If that's a really good question. I was really keen to hang in there and throw away the Christianity that I'd been brought up with. And at the time, I think there were lots and lots of holes in the Christian belief that didn't make sense to me. There were things about the atheist view that seemed to make it a more comfortable default position. Um, 
I think the turning point, um, the turning point for me was there's a part of me that is quite attracted to um, defending the underdog or the victimized. And I think the way that um, religious people had been characterized, including by people like the New Atheists, was that they were the bigots, they were the the, the crazy uh, right-wingers who wanted to destroy people's liberties and, and that kind of stuff and enslave people under a theocracy and dismiss all the efforts of science and that kind of stuff. But I think that the real change started happening was when I discovered the Christian apologetics, and I mean the really good ones, the ones that were philosophically, academically trained. And the one that I think really did stand out the most was William Lane Craig of Reasonable Faith. Um, his debates were all over YouTube. There was also, there were all sorts of videos of him debating atheists and really putting up a very, very strong set of arguments. Um, and then I would go to his website, I would read more of his material, start listening to his podcasting. Um, and gradually I got the sense that, okay, if you really want evidence and you're meant to use reason and logic, it looks like he's using it. You know, he, he's he's breaking down his arguments very clearly. He's spelling out the different premises, you know, premise one, premise two, conclusion, that sort of stuff. Um, there was a way of him making his arguments vulnerable to criticism in the sense that he articulated the arguments in such a clearly precise, logical fashion that it would be easier to attack and refute them than if it was just dressed up in rhetoric. Um so it really was, it was discovering um, the strength of the um, Christian academic apologetics. And, it's, and then I started to perceive things differently, I think. Um, it was when one of the things there was Dawkins was persistently refusing to debate William Lane Craig. Um, he debated all sorts of other religious people. Um, but he was persistently running away from this. People were inviting him to do it, and he kept just making all sorts of excuses that were rather insulting. And I thought, this doesn't quite make sense, because I've started living my life on the principle of challenging ideas and um, looking for evidence. And yet it seems as though William Lane Craig is very well um, matched to have a really good discussion with Dawkins. And yet right. Dawkins, Dawkins was just running away from it. Um, and there is actually that the funny thing here is around 2009, actually, I attended a debate that Dawkins was speaking at. It was called Is Atheism the New Fundamentalism? And um, in that debate, um, Richard Harries, the Reverend uh, or Lord Harries, um, had stood up and said that one of the characteristics of fundamentalism is that it never seeks out and attacks the strongest arguments of the opposition it always tries to focus on the weakest ones on the straw men and that really made me think okay this is my opportunity and it, it would be a relevant question to ask in this debate and so in the q a when i got the microphone i just asked dawkins to his face look lots of people have been inviting you to um debate william lane craig you've repeatedly refused to do this why is this not an example of what Lord Harry's was just saying about the new atheism uh, or fundamentalists um, avoiding the strongest possible arguments for the opposition? Now, somebody took that clip and they put it on YouTube, and I think it's had about um, nearly 300,000 
views to this day. Um, it became a viral clip of Dawkins um, basically just on video dismissing William Lane Craig, um, saying he's not worthy of his time. And, and the, the line that, of course, really went around the blogosphere was him just saying I'm busy you know I'm too busy, I'm too busy to debate this person you know and just just <laughs> dismissing him um and that I think was the turning point there was a sense of disappointment with Dawkins that didn't fit um the regard that I'd held him in until that point something started to look like new atheism was intellectually weaker than the kind of stuff that people like William Lane Craig were offering. That was probably quite a revelation to you to find that going into this search for evidence, you presumed that the, the substance and the strength was within the naturalistic worldview, but that's not what you found. The more you searched, the more you found strength in the Christian worldview and weakness in the atheistic worldview. I bet that was disappointing to find Dawkins in that kind of a, a sensed retreat of sorts to, to the challenge of debate from William Lane Craig. It was, yeah. I mean, you've got to be careful at this point and you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Dawkins refusing to debate doesn't mean that atheism is false. Um, but um, it nonetheless was one of those things that shook me up into asking, well, why would he refuse? I'd better look at this more closely. And it spurred me on to look at it more closely. Um, and when I saw the critiques that William Lane Craig was making of the God delusion, and indeed when I saw him debate Christopher Hitchens, um, I mean, Christopher Hitchens was my favourite new atheist of all of them. He was just an incredible character. Um, and um, But when um, pitted against somebody with really good philosophical training, who really knew um, the arguments... Um, he turned out to be very weak when they had their debate at um, Biola University. That was also 2009, I think. Um, and so it, it opened up all those questions about, look, okay, what do you do with the fact that the universe had an absolute beginning? Um, you know, does that logically deduce that it has to have a cause which is transcendent and would actually have all the characteristics that we describe as God? Um, what do you do with the fine tuning of the universe? Um, what do you do with the apprehension of moral truths? Or at least it seems as if there are moral, tr moral truths. How do you account for those? Um, and then when you look at the historical evidence of the resurrection, how do you explain it? All of those arguments, it was becoming very uncomfortable. Um, and I should say as well, there were other arguments about the nature of, um, you know, um, what it means to even be able to have rational thought in a universe that's purely governed by uh, mechanical, physical processes as well. All of those things. Um, it, it was becoming very uncomfortable how the more that those kind of arguments were investigated and those, press, those questions were probed, the weaker the atheistic worldview appeared to be under that scrutiny. I, I'd, I'd hoped that it would come out head and shoulders above Christianity. Right. And I, I know that uh, it would be somewhat disappointing or disheartening in some way. How long was this process of looking and searching and considering? I think it's probably fair to say, it. well, 
if we say that it kicked off at the time of reading The God Delusion and consciously looking into this issue, which I guess you could, that had to be around 2007, 2008. Um, the whole process, I think, went on till around about 2011. Um, so, yeah, we're talking, what, 2008, 2009, 2000, about, must be somewhere in the region of around three to four years, I think, gradually. I, I think what I need to say as well is that, I mean, this stuff, I've been characterising it quite a lot as... Um, uh, sort of intellectual argumentation and that kind of stuff. And that is an important part. It's very big and it's crucial. Um, you know, you have to use your mind on this stuff and you have to be very, very inquiring and critical um, of all all the different sides of the argument. But of course, it's, it's, never, it's never entirely 100% about the intellect or about the, you know, the mind in that respect. Um, it's the whole person and everything else that's going on with you in your life, whether that's emotionally or in terms of your your own agenda and your plans and your own desires. Um, because at that time, I had very particular desires to live in certain ways, to embrace particular lifestyles. Um, and I think I had to be I had to be shown that some of the more hedonistic ways of living that would be perhaps more licensed by a naturalistic worldview were not um didn't live up to what they were recommended and how they were promoted really so i think it, it was a mixture of the as the as the intellectual side of it became stronger that is to say the fewer arguments i had against christianity and in favor of atheism um the less I could use intellectual objections like a kind of shield, so to speak. I couldn't mm. use them as an excuse for staying away from belief in God and Christianity. The more that the uh, intellectual questions were being addressed and answered, the more exposing it was of the other reasons, perhaps, why I didn't want to embrace this. Because it does mean that you you move from... Um, a model of a universe where there's no purpose, no design, which means you basically get to set your own course and just make up all your own rules and call the shots completely by yourself. It does mean that you end up moving, um, you know, an omnipotent, you know, all good, all knowing God into the picture as an authority again. Um, and that is something that on its face, yeah, um, it, well, that was what put me off it in the first place. And so, to move back to that, it can't just be about whether you're intellectually convinced. Um, there needs to be change happening emotionally as well. And I think that was going on too through various life experiences um, while doing this investigating. We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. Please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. So it is a bit of the whole person, like you say. I'm glad you, you brought that out because belief is definitely more than just intellectual assent when you when you essentially buy into a worldview 
It affects not only your beliefs, but it affects all of your life. So how did you come to make that more total kind of conversion towards the not only the truth of the Christian worldview intellectually, but the truth of the Christian worldview for what it meant for your life? I think it was... Well, after sort of near the end of university and having graduated from university, um, the the choices that I was making were very foolish, frankly. Um, and I wasn't going on a good direction, um, you know, with what to do next. Um, got into a relationship that I really shouldn't have got it into at all, really. Um, and that just, that just put things down um, a very wrong path where I could just see that a lot of these ways of living that I wanted to live wouldn't work and wouldn't stand up. And then actually, it's funny, the more that you investigate the apologetics, you can start from arguments that are quite abstract and philosophical, um, you know, or scientific. But then gradually, you have to confront, you know, the identity of Jesus. You You have to ultimately look at okay look who is he what did he come to do um and i think through the apologetics listening to the podcasts and investigating that gradually um i was being exposed more to um biblical content um you know understanding more about what it actually means to become a christian um the way that the actual change that that brings and the fact that it does mean that you end up embracing um, a totally different view of reality, which is that um, you are, you know, you are a sinner. You are guilty of all sorts of um, crimes and wrongdoing. Um, but you are, but the penalty for that has been paid, and you get to live completely, um, completely free of that. Um, in what would then be unconditional acceptance in God's eyes. Um, and it just seems as though the alternative to that, um, every other alternative to that way of living um, seems to be something where you have to be the one who achieves. You have to be the one who makes sure you never, ever, ever screw up. Mm. And that, and that doesn't just, and that doesn't just apply to other religions. Um that replies to other secular views as well. You know, there's a survival game being played out in atheistic views, you know, whether you're a humanist or or a nihilist or a social Darwinist or whatever you want to call it. Um, there is still a burden of you have to make it. You, you, you know, you mustn't put a foot wrong. Um, whereas with Christianity, that was the only thing that was actually saying, no, it's not about what you do. Um, it's about who you're related to, you know, how, what is your standing with God? Um, and I think the apprehension of that was making itself clearer in my mind as to what would be involved if I actually joined it and became a Christian. Um, I think the real thing that um, really did push me over the edge, though, I, it, it was a gradual process. I think the strange thing that happened was that I said that this was, it took a number of years. So my allegiance was changing. Um, I wasn't a, a Dawkins fanboy or anything like that. I wasn't a new atheist supporter anymore. Um, I think I probably intellectually was ready to become a Christian about a year before I actually converted. 
and that 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 comes back to what I was saying about um, the difference between you know the intellect and the, the deeper, more volitional things that go on within somebody. Um, I got to the point of um, it was 2011, and um, I'd got to know some people that were working on bringing William Lane Craig back to the UK to do a speaking and debating tour. Um, these were people like Justin Briley at Premier Radio, and there's Dr. Peter May, who used to be the chair of UCCF, um, the Universities and um, uh, Colleges Christian Fellowship. Um, I got to know those people and that they were organising to bring William Lane Craig back over to the UK. Um, and I just found myself getting more and more involved with them and actually helping to try and sort of promote the tour. Um, I was making videos and putting them on YouTube, um, sort of drawing attention to the fact that Bill Craig was coming to the UK to do speaking and debating. And this was around about the time as well that Dawkins' refusal to debate was really kicking off. Um, mm. He'd already refused a number of years ago, but now four different organisations were inviting Dawkins to debate William Lane Craig. He was just refusing and throwing out all sorts of ad hominem excuses. Um, and I was just feeling, again, very, I was feeling let down. I mean, maybe even betrayed, I think, um, conned almost at this point, um, that actually this this great new atheism just was a sham, you know, really, in my um, the way I was looking at it. And so I, I was making videos that were probably more provocative than if I were making editing choices now, but, um, and putting them on YouTube, you know, trying to sort of stir up the discussion about, you know, will Dawkins debate Craig, you know, look at all the excuses for why he's not doing it and sort of trying to in add a little bit to the drama, I think of what was going on. And they, they went viral as well, actually, they got shared quite a lot. Um, videos like William Lane, Craig Dawkins and the empty chair, those kind of things. Um, and eventually um, doing things like helping to design the adaptation of a parody for um, a bus campaign that um, uh, was advertising the event at the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford, um, where um, William Lane Craig was going to refute the arguments in The God Delusion. And Dawkins had been invited to attend that debate. This was in October of 2011. He was invited to debate um, William Lane Craig. And when he refused, they said, look, what we will do is we'll make it a lecture where um, William Lane Craig will um, refute, you know, the main arguments in the God delusion, and then he will interact with a panel of um, opponents. Um, but um, I, I got involved basically in trying to promote that. And um, I think in 2009, the British Humanist Association had made um, a bus campaign that said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Well, we flipped that round to say there's probably no Dawkins. Now stop, um, I think, stop worrying and enjoy October 25th at the Sheldonian Theatre. <laughs> oh, my. The, uh, so they're basically, you know, a little sort of um, a bit of a dig at basically saying, look, there's probably no Dawkins showing up to the debate, you know, basically. Um, he's not going to do it. Um, and this was... Um, this was also um, backed by um, at least one other atheist um, philosopher from Oxford, um, Dr. Daniel Kame, um, who'd published an article in The Telegraph as well, saying that, look, this could be interpreted as cowardice, you know, um, Dawkins, because you're you're debating all sorts of um, other sort of low hanging fruit. But you're not you're not debating one of the most academically capable people here. Um, 
So I just got really involved. You know, I, I, I made the graphics adaptation for that bus campaign and they went around Oxford and I think that got under Dawkins' skin a fair bit. Um, and he, you know, was publishing a attack article in The Guardian and all of that was heating up. And I think we got to the point of the tour where Bill Craig was um, over and doing his debating. Um, and I... I think one of the last things that pushed me over the edge, it, funnily enough, it was talking to his wife, Jan, um, because, you know, she she was incredibly um, welcoming and, you know, was just keen to understand a bit more about who I was and how I got to this point and why had I confronted Dawkins and where am I now? You know, and I said, well, I guess I'm sort of agnostic. Um, and there was a point where she basically said, look, if you don't think you could basically um give up everything to follow jesus if you don't think you could give your whole life to this don't do it that that's what she said she said if mm. if you if you couldn't actually really give everything to it then actually you shouldn't do it that 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 is what this is really about it's a total um commitment and a total change and i think that was just one of the last things that i was mulling over um, and it just got to the point during that tour where I just realized, I think I believe this. Why, why am I not a Christian yet? I'm, I'm following this. I'm defending Christianity against, you know, atheism and all these arguments. Right. Um, I've just, I've not actually signed up to it yet, but I think I sort of have anyway. I've sort of morphed into this Christian, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and so I think um, I, I I just I just made that decision. Um, uh, it was October nineteenth, um, I think. Yeah, I, I think that that's when it was uh, two thousand eleven. And I made that decision. It was in a bed and breakfast in Cambridge after William Lane Craig had been doing a response to Stephen Hawking's um, uh, book, The Grand Design. Um, and also when Dawkins had published one of his biggest um, you know attack articles in the Guardian, trying to smear. William Lane Craig being morally unfit to debate and all those kind of things. I just got to that point of, you know, no, you've got to get on your knees and pray and just get on with it. You are a Christian, Pete. You can't escape it now. This is what you've become. So it was it was surprising to you probably in a way, but in another way, it was a very conscious, like you said, a very conscious, conscientious journey. It was a very thoughtful journey of of exploration, of looking at both sides, of debating both sides, of listening to both sides of the issue, of thinking about what that might mean for your own life and all of those things. But now it's been nine years since you've, you've made that decision to go ahead and just believe. So how has your life been affected or changed I know it was a, a morphing through that process. I would presume that that morphing continued in your maturity as your understanding as a, a follower of Christ. Yes, I mean, it certainly has. I mean, uh, to, when you start out, um, you know that something has changed, um, but but there's still a lot of stuff that still needs learning and discovering. Um, and you discover a lot more about yourself in the process. Um, and there's also a lot of, you know, dependency on the help of other people and, you know, guidance from other Christians as well uh, when it comes to your own being discipled and being taught. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's huge, really. And, and you're right, it is. Um, 
yeah it, it it is um it is about about nine years um it's been a very long trajectory i mean i think what the way i would sum it up i think is i think i started my journey and coming into christianity mostly through the head you know in that kind of maybe academic intellectual sense i think it started there and then it sort of reached the heart or um the emotions or you know the 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 more deeper part of my being sort of afterwards it kind of sort of went from the the outside in in that way um i mean it's 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 extraordinary really i mean when you it's a real comparison to the life i was living before that um because it really should be said the more that my conviction of the apologetics and the arguments for christianity was going up my personal life and the decisions that i was making in that very hedonistic lifestyle that was very much informed by um that naturalistic um model sort of eat drink be merry tomorrow we die that kind of stuff i mean that was plummeting and i think that way of living had to collapse and my own um, desperation, I think, had to be exposed as well. If you were drawing them on a graph, um, you know, the the academic or the, um, the apologetics conviction would be sort of on an upward curve, whereas my own personal um, situation, I think, was going down. And I had to basically restart, um, you know, my whole sort of postgraduate um life in terms of what do I do next what job do I get and that kind of stuff so almost from scratch really it it was a real restarting Mm -hmm. um and that just meant confronting all sorts of um uh I use the expression inner demons you know but I think we could we could probably use that word metaphorically but um it's been a huge trajectory of um you know sort of having reconciling things with my parents um and then getting a new um journey of you know where to go you know with life from that point onward i would say that um the biggest transition was moving beyond apologetics into theology in the sense of really needing to get good discipleship and biblical teaching um you know the people like tim keller for example you know listening to you know his sermons as well as you know the the church that i was going to um it's been it's been a process of discovering more about myself and I think the biggest um, journey has actually been one that took me into a whole different area of Christian ministry. So up until this point, it's all been about apologetics. It's all been about academic stuff. Um, this was when I enc- had to basically encounter um, biblical counselling. Um, this was this is the sort of stuff that's produced by um, CCEF in the United States or Biblical Counseling UK in this country, the United Kingdom. Um, that was founded by the late David Paulison. Um, and that's all about um, how the truths of the Bible and the truths of what happens to somebody once they're saved and once they're in Christ, what that actually means for people um, in their own identity and um for living their life and for all sorts of issues like anxiety depression and addiction and all those kind of things um it's a biblical model of counseling and psychotherapy basically the reason why i mention 
uh, those sort of ministries, biblical counselling ministries, was that um, I'd I'd moved to London and was freelancing doing video and graphics work. At this point, actually doing work to help Christian apologetics, um, uh, video, PowerPoint slide production for William Lane Craig's debates, um, Premier Christian Radio, helping out with them. Um, and I actually got into a, a time of acute anxiety, a ferocious battle with anxiety. Um, and I mean, that was debilitating. It was it was extremely intense. And it got to the point where I actually started seeing a biblical counsellor, somebody who was trained um, in taking the Bible and discipleship and applying it to what that means for people that are struggling with those sort of things. Um, and that's really, that was a big year of learning, a really big learning curve about myself um, and growing a lot more in discipleship and understanding what it really means. If, it, if Christianity is true, if there really is a God who we are accountable to um, and we are morally guilty before, but yet he has made that escape route of um, coming down in the person of Christ and being that sacrifice paying for the sins and the crimes that we have committed um, so that we can actually be reconciled to God and be counted as one of his children as if we were as totally perfect and blameless as Christ. Um, if that's really true, then that has all sorts of implications on the everyday life and on these kind of issues. And what I basically learned from that was that I... Um, I was just suffering from um, acute perfectionism, massive, mm. massive um, perfectionism, um, you know, making me very uh, controlling and, um, you know, sort of um, enslaved to that kind of um, illusory pressure of never, you know, I must never inconvenience people. I must never make mistakes, um, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I need to be in complete control of what I'm doing. Um, otherwise, everything's a disaster, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and that's when the truths of the Christian worldview really hit home. When you learn that stuff and you come to discover, no, actually, um, you know, you are, your identity does not sink or swim with your achievements, um, with mistakes that you make or successes that you have. Um, you are not in control. You cannot be in control. God is the one who's in control. And it, it's about what he wants to achieve rather than what you want to achieve. Um, and that God can use all sorts of things in your life, including suffering, to actually um, to, to refine you and help you learn and even to bring you into a closer relationship with him. And so I think that's been quite... An astonishing trajectory you said over this last nine years I've been learning so much more about myself and what um what my own inclinations are and actually learning that actually if you grow in discipleship as a Christian um and grow into what it really means to be um in Christ then actually the outlook is so much better i mean even if you're in bad life circumstances what those circumstances mean for you is radically changed and it truly is um it's a it's a new type of freedom um 
because it means that you again you're you're not living for performance you're not living to justify yourself um you're living for genuine relationship whether that's relationship with other people but ultimately god himself um and that and that means that the relationships that matter the most and your self identity cannot be destroyed um by um well death for a start <laughs> but um it also can't be destroyed by your by your failures uh, or wrong choices so that's the existential i think significance i've i've gone from um accepting that it's true to having that lived understanding i think of what it actually means um for your life sounds like you've made an enormous transformation in your life as you said, just going from your head to your heart, to your life, and understanding who God is, who you are, and all the the freedoms that come with that, even though it seems constraining from the outside, that when you are a Christian, you see actually it's extremely liberating because you're living in the reality of an unconditional love and acceptance and belonging and a, an immensely value valuable identity when you're in God. So, you know, I think that there's something paradoxical about that, something very ironic. And as you were looking from the outside as an atheist, seeing that belief in God was uh, a control that you did not want, and now it's a control that you actually love because you see that he it's out of love uh, for you that you that you live and you live in a in an in an incredible freedom that's thank you for that vulnerability and that transparency peter that's quite amazing well i think it's well well you're welcome i mean i think i i think it's important because i think the other thing that i've been learning as well is that and it goes back to what I was saying before about it's never just intellectual. Um, there are all these issues. I mean, all that stuff I was saying about perfectionism, I mean, that will have been true right the way back at the beginning of my university years or even earlier. Um, you know, all of that will have still been going on. Um, that will have been part of my reasoning process or why I went one direction rather than the other. And I think that it's the same for everybody. There are underlying, deeply, deeply personal issues um, that are always involved in this process. And I think, now don't get me wrong, it, it's certainly a mistake to say, oh, you know, just have a simple faith and don't think about this stuff. Don't ask questions. I mean, that's a lethal thing to do. I mean, um, if, if, you, if you live a life where you don't question anything, and certainly if you want you know, to be a Christian or whatever. I mean, um, if you, if you just try and stick your fingers in your ears and don't grapple with questions, all sorts of things are going to start falling apart at the slightest challenge. Um, and, and, and it's vital to do that. So I think the, the intellectual side needs to be um included but it's never only about that i think it's it's the full dimension of what it is to be human really um uh the best summary i've heard is um my friend the philosopher peter williams uh, peter s williams um describes it as it's it's your head and your heart and your hands you know it's what's going on in your thinking 
um, whether that's consciously or assumed, you know, perhaps unconsciously. Um, but then there's the heart as well. What am I actually wanting and desiring? And what are my passions? What what uh, What's driving me? Or conversely, what am I afraid of? There's all of that going on. And then with hands, it's just, okay, what do you do? What, what are the actions that you then end up taking? Um, it's the interaction of all of those, I think. Um, all of that is going on at any one time with everyone, I think. We'll return to our story in just a moment, but first I'd like to ask you a few questions. Have you ever wondered what heaven is really going to be like? What we will look like? What we will do? We all have questions about what heaven will look like. And after 25 years of extensive research, Dr. Randy Alcorn has the answers. On January 22nd, 2021, the C.S. Lewis Institute will have a live stream event with Dr. Randy Alcorn and Randy will be teaching about heaven. You can find out more about this live stream event and register on the C.S. Lewis website, www.cslewisinstitute.org. If for some reason you missed this episode, you can always find it in our resources area. Now let's get back to our conversation. Hi, again, it's just beautiful to me how you have had such an intentionality towards not only searching for what is true and real and life-giving, um, but you, you've really made it your own. And you continue that discipling process, which is really critical whether in whatever stage you are, that we're always looking towards growth and understanding. And I just appreciate that with you. In, in closing this today, Peter, because you have been on both sides of the fence, as it were, as an atheist and as a Christian, you understand it from the inside out. I'm looking for some advice as to what you would say to the skeptic, perhaps who, as you once did, had a perhaps a, a very negative stereotype of Christianity but hadn't taken time to take a closer look. What would you say to someone like that who may be curious? Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, it's just fascinating to imagine and try and think of who might be listening to this and, and what it must sound like to them. You know, I mean, I, I can remember being at university and being in a particular mindset where um, I, 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 unknowing to my friend, I'd, I'd snuck... Um, a copy of one of his sermons and was just listening to it on my um, mp3 player while I was out on a walk you know and I heard one of them say something critical of one of the new atheists and I just got so angry I think I was in a field and I shouted and tried to tear down a tree branch or something you know I think I was, <laughs> I was just <laughs> um, that, that was in one of my more turbulent moments you know um so you know I think um I I I, I do want to be very aware um, and, and equally, there have been other times where I've, it's just been a pleasure to interact on these, uh, on these, uh, on these things, and just have the discussion, you know, very in a very relaxed way. So I don't want to make any assumptions about where people are in terms of their own journey. I think generally, I mean, what would I say to somebody who's skeptical but maybe curious about Christianity, belief in God? Hmm, I think. I think I would be, I think by way of reassurance, I think I'd want to say, 
I think we're living in a time where views get very polarized, um, where it's very easy to think that because somebody is a member of one group or one set of something, um, that um, therefore a load of other characteristics must be true of them as well. So, you know, for example, if someone's a Christian, then they must be um, some kind of Bible thumping, far right leaning, you know, Trump voting person or whatever. Um, or if someone's an atheist, then they must be some sort of, you know, horrible leftist heathen. You get all this just pathetic, um, really, really sad stuff, um, unfortunate stuff going on where people just caricature people and put them in groups. And I think that an important thing to do um, is to really try and be careful about separating out um, what um, what things really imply which. You know, it's not true, for example, that if someone's a Christian, that therefore they are necessarily going to be politically right wing, for example. You know, there are um, there are people that are Christians that think that um, more socialistically ways of managing um, countries or um, societies work better, for example. Um, it's not true that the only um, people involved in the arts and performing worlds are um, you know, secular, um, you know, there are, there are Christians involved there as well. Um, I think the, the important thing to do is, is really just to be able to separate things out and enjoy the process of, um, asking questions and inquiring about particular avenues of exploration. Um, you know, asking questions about, you know, so, um, when it comes to things like, the historical question of whether Jesus existed, just engage with that as a question in its own right, you know, mm. um, you know, um, you know, who, you know, who was Jesus? What do the, you know, what are the arguments on both sides? You know, what does it say about him um, in terms of, you know, what, what he did, what he achieved, what's documented Um I think make a point of just trying to identify what the different points of views are um, and just try to try to explore them. Um, I think asking questions is crucial. There's not enough question asking going on at the moment. Um, it's always good, I think, to, if you find somebody with a different point of view, just keep asking them questions about it. Get them to unpack it and explain it in as much depth as you can get them to, um, especially if it's an argument or especially if it's a disagreement. Um, a lot of disagreements just fall flat on their face and turn into silly arguments where people are talking past each other because um, you think I have to jump up and um, uh, basically be on the, be on the defensive immediately um, and tell the other person immediately that they're wrong. But actually, one of the most valuable things you can do, if only as a sort of um, recon exercise, I suppose, is just keep asking people. So get them to clarify exactly what they mean. You know, this is a Greg Kokel thing uh, from Stand to Reason, um, his principle, which is, you know, get people to really spell out what do they actually mean by what they're saying. Um, don't just assume that you know what they mean when they use a particular word or talk about an issue 
check with them what do you actually mean by that so if somebody says um um you know something like um i don't believe in evolution like if somebody actually says that you need to ask them well what what do you mean by that i mean what kind of evolution are you talking about i mean are you talking about any change of any kind um you know in the in the animal kingdom or are you talking about something different or or what you know um and and Conversely, if somebody says, um, you know, um, I think the Bible is fairy tales, again, ask them, what do you mean by that? I mean, do you mean, do you think it's, um, what, untrue, inaccurate? And and ask them for the evidence. I mean, it is, it is actually, funnily enough, that Dawkins principle, um, which is, you know, ask them for the reasons about why they think what they think. So I think just be curious, I would say, to take individual lines of exploration um and just question them um do the questioning process um get as much um data as you can by being intrigued by the other person and ask them to explain um explain more of it to you and and i think that has to involve it also has to involve questioning your own assumptions though as well You've got to ask yourself, okay, what what am I believing, um, or even what am I holding as most valuable to myself? Um, and if there's any logical train of thought going on here, what would what would the logical outcome of that train of thought be? You know, um, am I living consistently with things that I say I believe, or are there some holes there? So I think just be be curious ask loads of questions about specific um, issues instead of letting it fall prey to the polarization that we're surrounded with in our culture. I think that's fantastic advice all the way around. If there's anything you would like to add, even for the Christian, the Christian needs to learn to ask questions as well. Uh, but there's, there's always this seemingly, at least in culture today, there's this cursory understanding and, and this misreading of Christianity uh, that it's not good, it's not true. Uh, sometimes it's earned and well-deserved, and sometimes it's unearned. But how would you speak to the Christian who is trying to present Christ in a positive way to those in culture who seem to misread? I think I'd say, I think pretty much everything I've just said for the atheist. Um, I, I think those apply as well because um, you, because equally Christians can jump the gun and think that they need to jump in and be on the defensive or run away scared, you know, fight or flight, either of those two. And I think there needs to be, we need to really put our money where our mouth is in terms of showing that we've got the confidence that look, if this is true, you know, if we really are, um, you know, saved and in the care and the wisdom of an all-powerful, all-good God, you know, with a redemptive plan, um, who knows what he's doing and is in control, then it would, it just seems crazy, the idea that um, there would be any questions that would be something to be afraid of. Um, I think actually, I mean, there was a poll conducted, I think it was a Gallup poll a number of years ago. This was something that the um, Christian philosopher JP Moreland was pointing out. He was saying that apparently the biggest reason why people left 
um, churches and left the faith was because um, they had questions that either nobody could answer or weren't being taken seriously. Um, mm. They they were just being given a superficial faith that wasn't being exposed to the difficult questions and the challenging questions, because every difficult question and every challenging question is an opportunity to grow in more depth in your faith. I mean, cause, I mean, think of it. If your if your faith is false, you'd better find out as soon as you can, so you can ditch it, get rid of it. Or if it's true, well, then it's going to be an opportunity to grow even deeper in it. Um, and so there has to be a real willingness to ask questions and expose ourselves to questions being asked of us. I think that that's that's very important. Um, and I think when it comes to when it comes to communicating Christ and engaging with people, um, again, I think it's the same stuff about you need to ask them questions. You need to find out where are they starting from? Um, you know, don't rush to assume that you know the person that you're talking to or what their issues are or their questions are or even what the emotional baggage is. You need to take the time to get to know them and find out, get to know. I mean, why why would you... Why should we expect them to want to get to know us or get to know Christ if we're not willing to get to know them? Hmm. <laughs> you know, I think we, we have right. to show we have to show that we that we're willing to engage. Um, and I think that, yeah, just take the time to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't believe what you believe, and just think, how would I explain this? How would I make it? How would I explain? what I believe in a way that doesn't presuppose any particular special words or jargon or anything like that. Um, and that can actually be understood um, by the other person. And it, you've, you've got to be able to find out where they're beginning at, where they're beginning at and just see where to go from there. You shouldn't pressure yourself to leap into, oh, I have to cram, I have to make sure I crowbar in a Bible verse and um and and, and a really, really quick summary of about um about Jesus and the atonement. So I can tick the box and say, look, I've been a good Christian, I've done my job, I've left them with a Bible verse. Now the Holy Spirit will do everything else. I mean, because uh, because basically that's basically using I mean, it's true the Holy Spirit uses our conversations. He uses God's word, um, you know, and he ultimately is the one that brings about the changes um, and brings people to faith. But you can't use that as an excuse for not having a conversation where you actually want to try and help the other person understand something. Um, the whole point of using words is that the understanding of what the word means is supposed to happen in the head of the person you're talking to it's about it's about what are you helping them to understand um, when they hear it rather than just words coming out of your mouth so just take that take that time to understand where the other person's coming from and think how do I communicate in light of what's going on with them that's tremendous advice. I think we all need to step back and take time and listen and seek towards understanding. That is just tremendous. Peter, thank you so much for being a part of this program, the Side B Podcast. I've loved hearing your stories and your insights and your fabulous voice, your theatrical voice. <laughs> you, you've given us so much to think about, and it's just been such a pleasure to hear you. 
Well, the, the university drama degree was good for good for helping me be clear on the um, on the podcast, I suppose. <laughs> yes, definitely. I think early on, I said, um, I think I gave a definition of faith that was Dawkins' definition. Um, that he said that faith is um, believing in something for which there's no evidence. I think the only thing I would just say to round it off is that now my understanding of faith is very, very different. Um, it it's not that um, f- when someone says I have faith or you have faith in God or whatever, it's not saying I believe in something without any evidence. The whole point of it is that you're saying I believe in something um, because there is evidence and I've made a judgment that that evidence is strong enough for me to trust it so that that's what I would say or you could look at it the way that C.S. Lewis put it which is that faith is um, I think he said that um, faith is holding to what your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods (laughs) I love that yeah Um, so by by that he's actually saying it it doesn't mean that you believe and um, and commit to something without reason. It's the opposite. It's when everything about you, um, when your feelings are all over the place, you cling to the solid stuff, um, which actually is the reason um, and and what you've and what you've learned and what you've experienced and what you have judged to be reliable. So if I say I have faith in a certain person. I don't mean that I've just blindly never met them before and suddenly trust them. I have a ton of evidence about my experience with that person. And I say, therefore, I can trust them. Or the or if you're getting on an airplane, for example, um, people sometimes say you have to have faith to go on an airplane. And I think that's true because you need to have a good basis for trusting it. You're not just going to step on any old piece of plywood. I mean, there is evidence to say that, um, you know, airplanes are generally very, very safe and the risk of an accident is very, very low. You can't guarantee that it won't happen, but still you have to make the judgment call. Is there enough reason for me to step onto it and trust it? So I think that that's what I would say, which is that it's not about committing to something because there's no good reason. It's because there is good reason, and that reason is strong enough for you to trust it. So it's all about it's it's all about trusting and having a good basis for that trust. It's very personal in that respect. Yes, we trust people, don't we? Um, And thank you so much for clarifying that. And that's extremely clarifying. Um, Yeah, it's extremely clarifying. Thanks for tuning into this IB podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe and share this new podcast with your friends and your social network. I would really appreciate it. For questions and feedback about this episode with Peter, you can reach me by email at the side B podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be listening to the other side.